The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. There is always purpose in being, but not always being in purpose. How easily we get caught up in defining who we are in relation to those around us. I remember walking home from school in fourth grade when I, when I noticed Roy, a classmate I didn't really like, walking at the same pace as me on the other side of the street. Until I noticed Roy, I was lost in the joy of walking home free of school, not yet enmeshed in the anger that waited inside my house. But once seeing Roy, I began without a word to walk faster, to try to outwalk him. He, of course, sensed this immediately and picked up his gait. As he strode ahead of me, I felt lacking and so stepped up my gait. Before I knew it, we were both racing to the corner, and I felt that if I didn't get there first, I would be a terrible failure. I have lived enough in the world to know by now that this is how our ambitions often evolve. We first find ourselves alone in the joy of what we're doing, but somehow there are suddenly others along the way and we lapse into the breathless race of comparison. And then we are hopelessly running to avoid being termed a failure. From here, we often latch on to the nearest goal as a purpose. If we can't find one nearby, we are thought to be adrift. But our lasting sense of purpose is in our breathing, in our being. As the humanitarian Carol Hedges reminds us, our purpose is that which we most passionately are when we pay attention to our deepest selves. So underneath all our worries about careers and jobs and retirements, our purpose really comes down to living fully, to being a light with who we are beneath all the names and titles, expectations, beliefs, and so forth we are given or aspire to. Imagine Buddha in the moment of enlightenment of being lighted from within. I doubt if he knew he was a glow. In fact, when Buddha rose from under the Bodhi tree, it is said a monk approached him in utter amazement of his luminosity and asked, O Holy One, what are you? You must be a god. Buddha, not thinking of himself as anything but present, answered, No, not a god, and kept walking. But the dazzled monk persisted. Then you must be a diva. And Buddha stopped and said, no, not a diva, and kept walking. Still the monk pursued him. Then you must be Brahma himself. At this, Buddha simply uttered, no. The monk, confused, implored, then what are you? Tell me, please, what are you? Buddha could not repress his joy and replied, I am awake. 
Can it be that our purpose, no matter whom we run into, no matter what we are told, is simply to be awake? Hello. Can we move forward? Everybody, take seats next to each other, close to each other. I can't see you from down here and you have something to say, you'll need to stand up. So that's why I've asked you to move forward. Mm -hmm. One of the singular profound representations of the Buddha's enlightenment, as well as other historically religious icons of the various different religions of the world at the moment of their own insight or awakening or enlightenment, resurrection, freedom, is the story of how they were so profoundly appearing so differently than they were prior to that moment. This, if you will, metaphor or this possible reality of that moment has fed down through all of the stories and speaks to us not necessarily about the individual themselves or even the moment, but about the reality of authentic spiritual work. On the day of his own enlightenment, it is said that the Buddha looked up at the morning star, a term used for the sun, and awoke or was enlightened. And often I tell the story about reading this for the first time in my own inquiry into Buddhism and finding the question, what was up with the morning star? <coughs> what was powerful with the morning star? What was different? And the truth of the matter was, nothing was different. It was the sun, the same sun he had looked at for almost 30 years of his life at that time, and the same sun he would look at for the next 46 years of his life before he died. What was different was not the world around him, but rather he and how he looked at the sun, how he held within himself the experience of that bright light, of that shining star, and how he held within him for the first time after 10 years of inquiry and deep searching for, his, for the answers to his questions on the human condition, on suffering, how after 10 years of deep inquiry, everything had changed for him, and in turn, everything had changed in the world. And so tonight, we're going to take a look at that miracle. And we call it a miracle because, not because of some kind of deity uh, quality about it, or supernatural quality about it, but it is something that, as the opening of the dharmas reminds us, is rarely experienced by you and I, is rarely, rarely experienced by most people, even though that experience is universal. Like energy, as we will talk about it a little bit tonight, it is everywhere. Enlightenment pervades the whole universe. Fundamental to all Buddhist teachings is the words of the Buddha himself on that day as well, when he said, all beings are Buddha. All beings are enlightened. 
And in the opening of the Dharma in liturgy at the monastery, you hear the words, Buddha nature pervades the whole universe, revealing right here, right now. It is everywhere. It is everywhere. And not only is it everywhere, everything is Buddha nature, possessing that miraculous moment accounted for in Mark Nepo's reaccounting of the day of the Buddha's enlightenment. And so what is also quintessential or fundamental to all Buddhist teachings, that is to say, more accurately, when the Buddha realized the answers to his questions on human suffering, when he realized them and proceeded to teach them for the next 40 some years of his life, what was central to all of those teachings is something we so often take for granted and it is because of our taking it for granted we never really experience it, see it, hear it, and know it as it is available to us as the words of the opening Dharma reminds us. And that has to do with the quintessential teaching that in order to find all of the happiness we seek in our lifetime, we need to first have a clear understanding of what the obstacle really is to our knowing it. Because like energy, like enlightenment, like Buddha nature, happiness is everywhere. It is in everything. And more importantly, the only happiness that will ever satisfy you, the only happiness that ever satisfied the Buddha, is the happiness within you. And to know that, one must first awaken to a clear understanding of the obstacle preventing us from knowing that. Rumi once wrote in his own words about love, he said, your work is not to go out looking for love. Your work is to inquire into discover and dismantle all of the mental, emotional, and psychological obstacles you have built up in your lifetime, preventing you from seeing it exactly where you are and knowing it exactly here and now. And I would add, no matter the circumstances, no matter the situations. So if you listen to the instruct, or if you read the instructions on the constant contact ad that went out, uh, recently about tonight, you were encouraged to bring with you a pad and pen. So whether you did or you didn't, if you did, it'll be helpful. So I'm going to ask you now to consider what you consider, what you consider to be the reasons why you can't be you. What do you consider to be the reasons why you can't be you? What are the obstacles? What are the conditions? What are the circumstances? Why am I not able to be who I am in any given moment, in any given circumstance of my life? What are the reasons you consider to be the obstacles preventing you from being you? Now, being you is a huge issue because being you is what is absolutely key to being happy. Happiness is a function of living authentically, meaningfully, and on purpose at every moment, in every circumstance, and in every situation. 
So when we examine the whole question of happiness and unhappiness, and this, there's been a lot of examining going on uh, for many, many years in many, many different fields. But 2,500 years ago, when the Buddha looked into the question of happiness, or the term that we use in Zen is contentment, that is to say, being content with my life just as it is. Mark Nepo's book that I often read from, read from is titled, you know, Finding the Life You Want by Loving the Life You Have. And this is a very Buddhist teaching. That is to say that, again, from the Buddhist perspective, happiness is a function of being content first with who you are, and everything else will follow. When you take a look at the story of the Buddha's own life, again, it begins very much like yours and mine when we chose to set out to ask the meaningful questions of life, the important questions of life. Somehow, for some reason, this prince of a royal family who had enjoyed for nearly 21 years <coughs> nothing but complete pleasure, abundant prosperity, everything and anything he could imagine to want, somehow found himself dissatisfied, found himself suddenly discontented, even though he had all the stuff, the things, the people, the places, the environment that we would consider causes for happiness. And when he sets out on his own spiritual quest to try to understand that, to answer the question of why is there suffering? Is there a cause for suffering and what is that? Is there a solution to our suffering and what is that? When he sets out to discover that, he comes to realize what has been handed down through the centuries, through teachers after teachers after teachers, that one of the reasons has to do with the fact that we keep looking for it in all the wrong places. And second, he realizes something that Abraham Lincoln once said when he wrote, I am absolutely convinced that we are all as happy as we choose to be. And by that, Lincoln was not intending to be either sarcastic or facetious about the topic, but he too was pointing to the source of our happiness as the Buddha did 2,500 years ago. So whatever your obstacles are or reasons are that you have written down or considered, I want you to hold them through the night. I want you to hold them through the night and see how they are for you at the end of the night. So the question again is, what do you consider the reasons to be for when you are unable to truly be who you are? Now that might translate into being honest with another person telling them how you really feel about something, uh, choosing to say no when you mean no rather than yes when you really mean no, turning down an invitation. There are millions and millions of ways that we can identify if we had enough time this evening, and I mean that literally, in which we choose to sell out or compromise who we are for what we consider to be safety or security or at least the avoidance of stress and anxiety between ourselves and another person. And so when we take a look at the Buddhist answer to all of that, when we take a look at the question, what is happiness? And a moment ago I said happiness is the ability 
to be or to live and be authentic in every circumstance and in every situation of your life. What we want more than anything else, what we've wanted from the time we were very little, is to be who we truly are and to know that we can be who we truly are. And something happens to all of us. It happened to me, it happened to you, it happened to the Buddha, it happened to Jesus, it happened to Moses, it happens to everyone. Something happens to all of us where suddenly that all changes for us. And we start being everyone and everything other than who we truly are. And the answer to that, the solution to that, the antidote to that, tonight will surprise you. Tonight will surprise you. Because just as the Buddha discovered there was a cause for suffering, and when you inquire into his teachings on the cause for suffering, the solution and the cause are located in the same place within you. We are both the cause of our fear of being who we truly are any moment in any given situation or circumstance, and we are also the solution or the antidote for correcting that in our life. It doesn't exist anywhere else. And one of the reasons why we find ourselves unable so often to be true to ourselves in every circumstance and every situation, easily willing to compromise who we are in order to satisfy or to appease or to avoid you know, difficulty with others, is because we do not understand the quintessential, essential practice that Buddhists talk about. And that is understanding how the mind is operating in every given moment. Life is never happening out here for me or for you. It is happening within you. Or as they used to say to you or maybe still say to you, it's in your mind. It's just in your mind. And it really is. In the Buddhist tradition, the five hindrances are identified as mental factors that hinder progress both in the practice of meditation and in living our daily lives with a sense of wholeness and well-being, confidence and strength, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. Within the Mahayana tradition, or the Zen tradition, the five hindrances are identified as obstacles to tranquility meditation and obstacles to mindfulness living. So if we are going to put to practice serious meditation and living mindfully in the world, we need to understand the teachings of what the Buddhists call the five hindrances. Now very much like I talk about addictions when I have over the years, I often tell the audience the reality is, is that there is only one addiction, and that addiction manifests in various forms. So when we talk about the five hindrances, it is important that you understand that there really is only one hindrance. In Zen there is a saying, all suffering is ego delusion. Ego delusion has to do with that part of the mind, whether you understand it now or not out of which we operate throughout the course of our day. That is to say that when you 
use the tools of the Eightfold Noble Path, which was the Buddhist prescription for waking up or liberating oneself from ego delusion. The first of those eight tools has to do with right point of view, has to do with seeing yourself, seeing myself as I really am, seeing myself in relation to the rest of the world as I and the rest of the world really am. And the reason why that is the first of the eight tools prescribed in the Eightfold Noble Path is that the Buddha also said that if you resolve this, if you really do the work of the first Noble Path, the first Noble Eightfold Path, if you really do the work of that, every, all the rest fall in place. Why? Because all suffering is caused by ego delusion. It is caused by a misinformed view of myself and the world around me. So when I find myself stressed or dealing with anxiety, even depression or anything that has to do with a negative emotion going on in me at any time, the Buddhists teach that the cause of that is ego delusion. In that moment, my view of myself and the world around me is out of balance, is at best out of balance, at worst, not real, not real at all. Without a clear understanding of how the mind operates from moment to moment, suffering, stress, and anxiety compounds. Without, without an understanding of what is going on in this moment, right now while you are listening to me, what is going on particularly in those moments when we find ourselves sad, depressed, fearful, worrisome, unsettled, uninspired, and we will take a look at all of those emotions and the five hindrances and how they manifest in that way in the body. Without a clear understanding of how the mind is causing that to happen, without an understanding of that, there are no possibilities of liberating oneself or ever coming to a place where one can truly experience oneself free of external, if you will, triggers that constantly rule us from day to day. So a moment ago I said to you that the first understanding necessary is that when you woke up this morning, and even before you woke up, while you were sleeping, how many of you had, I did last night, had dreams and, and you woke up the following morning and were like, wow, that was a ride, you see? You see? And they're just like all over the place. One moment I was here, the next moment I was there, and so forth. So this is going on in our unconscious state as well. But from the moment we woke up this morning, consciously at least, at least half consciously, we began our day perceiving the day and throughout the entire day according to egocentric point of view, or what Buddhists call ego delusion. Ego delusion is the cause of our unhappiness, our stress, our anxiety, our suffering, and all of the problems in the world. And when we understand how ego delusion is operating or how the bureaucracy of ego operates from moment to moment and plant into our daily living the practices of the five hindrances, 
the practices that come out of understanding the five hindrances that literally are preventing us at any moment. And I mean for you to understand that in that moment, earlier today or after today or right now, you felt unable to be happy or content with yourself, with your life, with the people around you. One of these five hindrances were involved causing that. And tonight we're going to take a look at what all five are, how they manifest from moment to moment, and the antidote for each one of them. So, big question. When was the last time you said, turn on the weather and see if tomorrow's going to be a nice day? When was the last time you turned on the weather to see if tomorrow was going to be a nice day? Sounds like a very innocent question, doesn't it? Sounds like a very innocent statement, doesn't it? What you fail to recognize is that it defines and explains the whole issue. And that the first day you turned on anything to see if tomorrow was going to be a good or bad day, you gave up your power. You gave up your power. And you've been giving it up ever since. You've been giving it up ever since. My daughter doesn't care about the Weather Channel. Okay? When she was four, she didn't care about the Weather Channel. When she was three, she didn't care about the Weather Channel. When she was two, she didn't care about the Weather Channel. One, didn't care about the Weather Channel. When she was an infant in her crib, did not care either about the Weather Channel or anything else her mother and I were thinking and talking about her future. I suspect that's going to run out soon. May not be the Weather Channel, but something will become the first step backwards from living life fully as who she truly is. And she will be referring to something eventually to determine whether or not she's a good person, whether or not it is a good day, and whether or not life is good or not. And this is part of ego delusion. This is part of the bureaucracy of ego. So to say it from a more profound Buddhist teaching way, what is going on at all times from the ego's perspective of the world is an exclusive dependency on conditions for happiness and well-being. Let me say that again. What is going on at all times in the mind is, or in the part of the mind I refer to as the bureaucracy of ego, is an exclusive dependency on conditions for my happiness and well-being. What is going on in every moment of every second of every day for the being is a egocentric point of view of the being and who the being is in relationship to the rest of the world where there is an exclusive dependency on external conditions for my happiness and well-being. We become convinced that who I am is a condition or dependent upon a condition. 
When we are dependent upon conditions, the Buddha said, there will always be suffering. There will always be dissatisfaction. Why? Primarily, all conditions, and I challenge you to challenge me by showing me one that isn't. All conditions are impermanent. All conditions change. All conditions are impermanent and are of the nature of impermanency. And when I depend on, for example, maybe a nice day is a sunny day. And the weather channel says, tomorrow will be sunny. But tomorrow night, it says, rain. You see? That's the best that gets. Tomorrow, you could be happy. Monday, forget about it. You see? All conditions are of the nature of impermanence. And yet, if you are willing to join me tonight in a career, courageous, if you will, uh, confession. We live our lives exclusively dependent upon conditions, external factors, which determine for us whether or not we are not only going to be happy, but whether or not we are permitted to be happy. And we have done this for so long that what was initially probably an effort to survive a most frightening situation or circumstance, the day we were scared out of our own skin to be who we truly are, has become a habitual behavior that can only be transformed by a clear devotion to doing the work to transform it. And the Buddhist teachings of the five hindrances gives us those tools and teaches us how to use those tools in a way to turn that around. So like the addict, we find ourselves addicted to conditions for our happiness. It doesn't necessarily have to be the weather. It can be the way he behaves. It can be the way she says something to us. It can be whether or not I have a job. It can be whether or not there's enough money in the bank. When we are willing to be honest, we need to at least be authentic about the fact that we are dependent upon, if not addicted to, external conditions for our happiness. If, to, if this happens, I'll be happy. If this happens, I won't. This addiction to this dependency upon conditions is the cause of suffering, is the cause of stress and anxiety. Because as conditions change, and they are of the nature of impermanency, they will change, our stress and anxiety level changes, our happiness level changes. We are directly linked to conditions that are impermanent and constantly changing, and if the Weather Channel tells us tomorrow is nice, by tomorrow evening when the Weather Channel predicts darkness and cold and three inches of snow and ice, our anxiety level rises, our stress level changes, and so forth. Or if he doesn't wake up tomorrow morning and say exactly what we need to know we are loved, 
or to know we are pretty? Or if she doesn't wake up exactly and act in behavior in a way that makes us feel confident and ready to go out? Whatever the external condition may be, as innocent as it may be at turning on the Weather Channel, whatever that may be, the cause of our suffering is not the condition itself or the changing nature of the condition, but how we hold the condition, how we hold it. The fact that we rely on conditions to determine for ourselves our level, our level of happiness and well-being. And even more deeply profound than that, we rely on external conditions to define for us who we are. Who we are. That reliance, that practice, that becomes habitual over years and years, we initially learn it as a survival technique. We compromise who we truly are. We compromise our honesty because someone scares us out of it. We become afraid of hurting them. We become afraid of losing their approval. We become afraid of disappointing someone, including ourselves. The problem with that part, including ourselves, is that we don't know who we are at that moment. So who are we afraid of disappointing? Think about that. The moment we compromise who we truly are, we forget who we truly are, and then we go through life trying to appease a phantom and wonder why it never works. Wonder why, no matter how much we get, we're not satisfied. And that is a function of attempting to appease someone who is not who we are either. Understand? We're not only appeasing other people other than ourselves, but we're trying to appease someone we have come to believe we are, and that if I only get enough of this, I will be happy. And yet we've done that over and over and over again, and we still aren't satisfied or content. And it's not because of any other reason that that day we compromise and what becomes our point of view and that is my happiness my life is exclusively exclusively dependent upon external conditions we enter into ego delusion and we commit those practices in as many enough times and for long enough that they become habitual that by the time you come here and sit down in front of me and I talk to you about it the mind is like what why? What's he talking about? He's trying to take my money. He's trying to take my safe idea. Okay. Any questions? <laughs> I don't really believe that, but gotta have a little drama. <laughs> Any questions? So when my happiness, my satisfaction is dependent upon any external condition, I then set myself up for suffering or suffering compounds. Because when the mind is convinced that one's happiness and well-being is a function of some necessary or required condition, it seeks out that condition at all times. Egocentricity is the seeking out of a prescription the ego has laid down as necessary for the happiness of the being. And at all times I am viewing the world 
from a place where you and everything else are objects and nothing more, including myself. I am an object to be satisfied by the rising of these particular conditions. When those conditions are not present, <coughs> don't expect me to be happy. I told you about my daughter, she's starting to tell me things like that too. When I ask her to do something, she says, well, if you give me this, I'll do that. Or I'll, if you don't, I'll really cry. <laughs> I tell her she's gonna have to cry. <laughs> so the Buddhists identify five hindrances. In the identification of these hindrances, once again, we need to be clear. They are not to be understood as five distinct individual hindrances, but five formations or manifestation of the single hindrance. The hindrance involved here is my, the way I hold conditions in life, my dependency, or whether you like it or not, the word I prefer is addiction. My addiction to having external conditions any particular way in order for me to be happy. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have a nice house, wanting to have a nice looking car. There's nothing wrong with wanting beauty to be surrounding you. Nothing wrong with any of that. What we are talking about here is how we hold those things. Nothing wrong with having, you know, a, uh, you know, a uh, investment that's making you a lot of money. Nothing wrong with having a lot of money in the bank or anything. The problem lies in how we hold that, or more accurately, how those things hold us. How those things hold us. One of the uh, most profound and most insightful teachings on this came from a businessman I once met who was very wealthy and very successful and when you heard his story he said you know I've made millions I've lost millions and I've made millions again and you got no sense from this gentleman that whether he was a millionaire or a poor man mattered to him and one of the things he said to me in my inquiry into all of that for him was he said one of the reasons why people don't have the money they need and want is because of what they think money is. What they think money is. And one of the things he distinctly said was they think money is a cause for happiness. And it's not. And it's not. People who have made great wealth made great, great wealth except for the cheaters and liars that we are seeing more of in the last four decades, but the people who made great wealth, except for those few, uh, made great wealth out of following a passion in their life, and the money followed, and that's what he said to me that day. He said, I just followed my passion, what I loved doing, and the money followed. It wasn't the other way around for him. So there's nothing wrong with any of this stuff. There's nothing wrong with things and, 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 and uh, experiences the problem lies in how we hold them, how we believe that they are the cause of our happiness. So I'm going to talk about the five hindrances, describe them to you, and then we're going to take a look at each antidote. That is to say, 
how the Buddha or Buddhist teachings teach us to deal with them as they rise. But I want to offer you, before I go into the individual ones, a general statement on that. And that is, you can begin by this moment remembering this. All conditions are impermanent. Therefore, unreliable, undependable, except temporarily. All conditions are impermanent. Therefore, unreliable, undependable, except temporarily. If you can remember that, you can begin to ease the suffering, the stress, and the anxiety that often rules us when one of those conditions either fail to appear or break up sooner than we would like it to. Change or you know, begin to shift. All conditions are impermanent, therefore unreliable, undependable, except temporarily. Except <coughs> temporarily. So if you're into temporary satisfaction, you got no problem. If you are willing to just take satisfaction temporarily, you've got no problem. <coughs> and there is a way of doing that. And there's a Buddhist teaching on how to do that. We'll look at that tonight. The mind is constantly viewing the world from an egocentric place, craving external conditions for its happiness and well-being. The first means or hindrance it uses, or which is usually present when we find ourselves dissatisfied, discontented, sad or even depressed has to do with the hindrance referred to as sensory desire. All sensory desire, the particular type of wanting that seeks for happiness through the five senses of sight, sound, smell, taste, and physical feeling. So the first hindrance is what Buddhists call sensory desire. It is the behavior of the mind that is seeking happiness visually, through sound, through taste, through feeling, the five senses. It's craving, or what my second, class, second year sister at Our Lady of Ransom taught us, coveting. The mind is always coveting what it sees. So, the first hindrance, if you will, mentioned in the five hindrances as obstacles, what is going on in that moment when I am unhappy and dissatisfied could possibly be some craving. For example, when you crave food when you're not really hungry. Okay? And if you're going to get any control over that, dietitians will tell you, and therapists who work with that will tell you is the practice is to know when you're really hungry or just desiring food to fill up an emptiness that has nothing to do with your stomach, has nothing to do with your body. The second hindrance is ill will. All kinds of thought related to wanting to, related to, wanting to reject feelings of hostility, resentment, hatred and bitterness. 
And I've got an example for you that happened for me as I was driving here tonight. So I come the same way all the time. So I'm driving down Tuckerton Road and I pass this particular house of a particular person that I know who disappointed me not too long ago in a time in which I really needed her support. And you need to know that when I left the house tonight, I left with my daughter kissing me, hugging me, telling me she loved me, giving me so much love, so much affection, laughter and joy. The babysitter was great. The day was great. She worked outside with me. It was a wonderful day, and I'm driving down, really with that joy, very much like Mark Depot's story. I go past this house and same. And my mind went to the story which led to the resentment which took me for the moment until I was aware of it out of where I really was. Where was I really joyful, happy, looking forward to being with you tonight, happy for the day with my daughter. That's where I really was. That's what was really going on in that moment. The five hindrances distract us, take us away from the present moment, from the here and the now. In the here and the now, we find the reality of life, and that is, as I said earlier, Buddha nature pervades the whole universe. So in the present moment, in the moment, in being present to here and now, we find all the happiness we're ever going to find anywhere. When we're distracted from that, obviously, we don't find. And that's one of the natures of the five hindrances. The five hindrances not only take us away from the source of happiness, take us away from the experience of happiness, but literally determine for us whether or not we're permitted to see it and experience it. So whenever we are indulging any kind of ill will, and we'll talk about each of these more in detail in a moment, and one of the things you find out about ill will is that when it does show up, it shows up justified. <laughs> justified. And the mind says, then I better indulge it. Hey, this is justified. But think about it. Hey, this is justified. Oh, I don't know. The joy and happiness I can go back to later. This is justified. What she did to me. <laughs> See? And in that moment, it grips us. It literally grips us. And it grips us, or the power it has in our life, is because we have come to believe that conditions, and I may not have said this earlier, so let me clarify it now, anything of the nature of impermanence is not real. Anything of the nature of impermanence is not real. Reality is a marking belonging only to that which is not impermanent. Anything of the nature of impermanence is not real. So again, these hindrances grip us in such a way that we act upon, live upon, indulge and experience them as if they are absolute, as if they are fixed. When we take a look at the antidote for dealing with ill will, uh, one of the antidotes has to do with the Buddhist practice of metta sutta, or metta meditation. So for example, the practice, would the practice would say to me that I need to sit with this person in my meditation and think of her from a much larger place 
see her much larger than just the incident that was offensive or hurtful, okay? And I have seen her in other circumstances and situations to be able to do that. But you know how it goes when you feel resentment towards that very same person that you've also experienced good times with, you see? The resentment colors it only dark, and you see and know only the dark. And again, the degree to which you indulge it is the degree to which it grips you and has you. We'll come back to that. The third hindrance, again, I, I remember when the first time I read this, uh, 30 some years ago, most of the Buddhist teachings, I was so impressed by how much of them were also Catholic. And one of the sins in, in, Catholic, in the teachings in Catholicism is sloth. And sloth happens to be one of the five hindrances. Sloth or torpor, heaviness of body and dullness of mind, which drag one down into disabling inertia and thick depression. And we're gonna take a look at that in much more detail in a moment. But that's a big one for all of us. And better explained, it is our attachment to a condition that we feel in the body and use. Now remember, all of these conditions, beginning with the simple one of the weather channel, we use to measure how life is for us at the moment. We use to measure how life is for us at the moment. So again, whether it's sunny or rainy, life is good tomorrow. The day will be great, the day will not be so great. The, the same is true about all the conditions. We use how we feel in our body to determine how life is for us. I mean, one of the biggest questions everybody asks is, how are you feeling? And I often say, like the question, how are you, Roshi? Changing. And most people don't like that answer because they don't understand that that's the only accurate answer. That's the truth. I'm telling you the truth when I tell you changing. You're not telling me anything when you say you're feeling good. You wouldn't like it though if I were to say to you, oh, right now you're feeling good. <laughs> but that would be true too. That would be the truth also. So any dependency on me on how my body is feeling in the moment, and we're not talking about, for example, uh, an inquiry into whether or not we are sick, we have a temperature or something like that. We're talking about a general overall experience in the body whereby we look or inquire into as to whether today's a good day or to whether I want to do something. When we take a look at our attachments to these conditions, they literally, if you've been listening, not only determine what our experience is, but what we are permitted to experience. And when we take a look at the hindrance on sloth, the teaching is, is that when we rely on how we feel, this, here's a simple way of understanding it, when we rely on how we feel in the moment, we're never going to the gym. <laughs> okay? We're never going to the gym. And in fact, if you're waiting to feel like going to the gym, it's not coming. It's not coming. But guess what? When we take a look at the antidote, it's going to the gym <laughs> or something like it. You see? But if you do it as a function of whether or not you feel like it, there will be suffering. 
there will be suffering. Remember what the man said, I followed my passion and the money followed? We need to switch the paradigm we li often live by. If I feel like it, I'll do it. No. If you do it, the feeling, the passion will follow. You see? Lately, my genetic inheritance of arthritis has been taking over my body from head to toe. I am in constant pain, waking up at night with it, and so forth. And so as I was sharing with, um, with Maisie the other day, uh, one day I went to the gym, again, didn't feel like it, went to the gym, followed the teachings, went to the gym, and started walking the track. And as I walked the track, the pain started to dissipate slowly and slowly and slowly. And by the time I finished my exercise program, it was gone. It was gone, okay? Now, if I had not gotten up and gone to the gym and did that work on my body, I may have never felt the relief that I felt, you see? If I waited for the relief to come as a reason to go to the gym, I would have never felt it, you see? So when we take a look at the antidote for sloth in a few moments, it fundamentally speaks to that practice. You cannot decide to engage life at any moment just because you don't feel like it. In fact, the practice is to engage life every moment and the feeling that you think has to be there first will follow, will follow. So anytime I am dependent upon feeling like it, there will be suffering. There will be suffering. Restlessness and worry is the fourth hindrance, the inability to calm the mind. And we'll take a closer look at that in a moment, what that is about. And once again, when you take a look at all of these five hindrances, individually and collectively, restlessness and worry, again, is a function of dependency and some external condition for my happiness and well-being. <coughs> Some belief about the absence of a condition or the presence of a condition causes me to feel restless or causes me to worry about tomorrow or causes me to worry about what you think and so forth. And the fifth one has to do with doubt. Lack of conviction or trust. Not only in others, but in yourself. It begins within yourself. So you know how the ancient Zen masters handled that with all their students? Especially the ones that had been, you know, like an intensive training and, and all of that. And they would hear the rumblings of, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. I don't know if this really is going to work and what have you. They would come into the Dharma Hall and their teaching would be, first thing necessary, muster up a great doubt. <laughs> don't believe anything I tell you. Don't trust anything. Now go meditate. You saying? And that was the teaching in the about the fifth hindrance. If you want to resolve self-confidence, if you want to resolve doubt, you don't indulge the doubt and act from the doubt. You act opposite. And we'll look at that in more detail. Any questions? Has Katie ever said to you, Daddy, I'm bored? Not yet. No. Not yet. Not yet. It'll come. I yeah, I know. <laughs> I see it coming. The second question is, if you said, I got you right, that everything that is impermanent 
is not real. Yes. And yet everything is of the nature of impermanence. That leads me to the conclusion that nothing is real. The teaching on impermanency in Buddhism is, is the truth of it, it's not that. Everything is of the nature of impermanence except one thing, and I'm not going to tell you what that is yet. Okay? I'll give you a clue. The Buddha said, when I sit and ponder upon what is mine, what is really mine, I cannot say that the things I have are mine because all things are of the nature of impermanence. They rust and decay. I cannot even say that the people in my life are mine, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my child, because everyone ages and dies. And he went down this kind of remaining list, and he said, the only thing that I can say is mine is my actions, my word. There he was pointing to the one thing that is permanent. Was that the two? That was the two. Okay. <laughs> two big ones. I do see Katie, though. I'm, I'm waiting. I give her about three weeks, then she'll be bored. <laughs> Hi, Janet. Hi, Roshi. How did you word hindrance number four? Hindrance number four is restlessness or worryment. When the mind just, in meditation, for example, when the mind is restless and it's all over the place and it's thinking a lot and and maybe worrying about something, that's, that's a hindrance to happiness. And again, not the restlessness itself, but how we hold it. And we hold it to mean something. <coughs> All thoughts of worryment, for example, are illusion, are ego delusion. What is it to worry about in the reality that you are going to die? You don't need to answer that, I'm just saying. <laughs> okay? I don't think I can answer it. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Um, I understand that we're very, very conditioned. And I feel like our identity is so wrapped up in our conditioning. And once we start letting go of our conditioning, I would imagine you'd start to feel lost and you would try to fill that void with something else. So where do you go from Well, from first thing you don't do is you, the first thing you don't do is try to fill the void with something else. Okay? And that is why I talk a lot about, in fact, my 40 years in March has been a commitment to what I call uh, the spiritual myth-busting. Okay. Again, all we need to do, I often challenge people by saying, let's look at the founders of these practices. Every single one of them descended into hell before they ascended into heaven. And that's what the hell, you, that's what you're talking about. Yes, in the process of liberating yourself, waking up, as I often say to people, the truth does set you free. The process will piss you off. Okay? And you need to get that. And you need to stay the process because at the end of the process is Buddha. Well, it's the same thing you're saying. You'll never feel like it's 
you'll, if you just let the feeling come, it will never come. You have to do the work to yes. set yourself free. Yes. Yeah. You have to do the work to set yourself free, and you have to be prepared that we all must walk through the valley of the shadow of death. All of us. You know, again, fundamental to Catholic teaching, Christian teaching, was, you know, the Son of God. This is what I always ask people in the Christian faith. You know, he had to be betrayed, murdered, crucified, die. And even when he resurrects, he still has to descend into hell before he's allowed to get into heaven. And you think this should be different. (laughs) Or that there's some secret of magic here. So, yes. Uh, yes, the process involves a place where you're left with who. But again, in the practice of just sitting, the teaching is, you'll see. I often say that most people never get there because that seeing is always right on the other side of the line they keep retreating from. Okay? So the darkest before the dawn is accurate. It, has to, it will get very dark before the dawn shows. Very dark before the dawn. Because, and not because that's the nature of truth, but because that's the nature of the lie. I mean, there's a reason why the devil is always depicted of living in darkness and fire and down rather than up. <laughs> and there's a reason for that, because that's the nature of it. So that, that I think, def- explains, you know, why, you know, the, the saying, you know, many are called but few choose, you know. Few people are willing to take this journey. They're, you know, as Thoreau said, they, they'd rather live in quiet desperation, you know. Jefferson said that Americans, Americans, he said, are more willing to bear the suffering, you know, of the lack of liberties than to do what's necessary to be free. We see that today, more than ever. So yeah, yeah. The the and again, are there times? And this is why the ancient Zen masters were the characters they were. You know, they knew that the doubt would come eventually. So they would tell their students, doubt. (laughs) You know, notice they weren't giving them anything to hang on to. No cookie. (laughs) No cookie. Any other questions? Sensory desire. The hindrance of sensory desire is latching onto thoughts or feelings based on the pleasures of the five senses. Seeking for happiness through the five senses of sight, sound, smell, taste, and physical or touch. Anything from the extremes (coughs) of craving or lust to just being concerned Uh, with how the body is doing. Just being concerned with how the body is doing. And that's where I want to focus on this this hindrance tonight. Our, again, as I said a moment ago, we make so many choices and decisions about not only circumstances that can benefit us, experiences that can benefit us, such as the example of going to the gym or taking a walk or exercising or eating right, not only those, but again, in those profound circumstances and situations that can literally save our lives and change our lives. So one of the practices 
is to live the practice whether you feel it or not. Live the practice whether you feel it or not. So I call that Nike Buddhism. So the antidote for sensory hindrance is what I call Nike Buddhism. So when you are really ready to do the work, the teacher gives you the prescription. The job of the teacher is to prescribe the path, to teach the path, and to guide you along the path. It is not the job of the teacher to get you to walk the journey, to get you to do the practice. And the reason for that is not because the teacher is not inspirational enough to do it, but because, again, you must do it. Because it is in you doing it, you experience it. You are the only one that can experience your own uh, liberation, your own awakening. I cannot experience that for you. And it is only in the experience of it that you know the liberation. It is only in knowing it here and not just here, knowing it here and not just here, that you are liberated and that the liberation has meaning to you. And the only way you get from here to here is to do the work, is to do the work. I'm often reminded about Einstein's teachings, and when he was with his first-year students, he would, be, he would you know, drive them crazy with a formula to solve and stop them before they got to work on it and remind them by saying, the only difference between Albert Einstein and you is that I've done the work. And often that is the only difference between freedom and slavery, is doing the work is doing the work. So the antidote for sensory desire, that is to say, the shift in paradigm. Again, what is the existing paradigm? We rely entirely on how we are feeling in the body to decide for us what's next, what we're going to do, what we're not going to do. Some of the greatest discoveries made that have changed the world, some of the greatest actions committed by human beings that changed the world, almost without exception, were done in the most horrific circumstances and situations, which most of us would retreat from. That's the difference between the them and us, you see, if we want it that way. So, the antidote to the first hindrance of sensory desire is to simply notice how you are feeling and stay the path. Do not indulge the, the feeling or the sense, if you will, in the body. The term alludes to the mind's tendency to latch on to something that attracts it, whether it's a thought, a visual object, or a particular emotion. But our emotions are the most profound presence for us. I mean, I don't know anybody, anybody that I come in contact with. I go to sleep tonight, I wake up tomorrow morning, I don't know anyone that I will come in contact in the course of the day tomorrow where the question, the primary question in that contact, in that moment, is how are you feeling? How are you feeling? That's the first question we often ask and we often expect to be asked, which speaks to us 
as to the mind's dependency on the answer. The practice is not to be in denial of the emotion or the feeling, but not to indulge it and not to use it as a barometer or a guide as to what your action should or should not be. It's kind of like Jesus' teachings on love your enemies, bless them who curse you, pray for them who despise you and make fun of you. Wasn't some kind of moral ideal to reach that makes you a good Christian, but was literally, from the Buddhist perspective, who said it first 500 years before then, was literally a training of the mind. I mean, if you can act from love after being hor horrifically harmed by the enemy, what's more freer than that? <laughs> when you can truly love someone despite their behavior, despite their words, despite their actions, and you can. When Lincoln says, I am convinced that we are as happy as we choose to be, he also meant, just as the Buddha meant it, that happiness, love, forgiveness, all of that good stuff is a choice. <coughs> it's a choice. It comes down to a choice. You see? It's the choice I make. I choose to love you unconditionally. It's something I'm teaching, my again, my five-year-old daughter. I'm teaching her that no matter what, I love her and that there's nothing she can do to change that. Do I feel that way all the time? No. There are days when I just feel like, <laughs> you know, somebody come get her, <laughs> you know? Took, took five years. <laughs> it's here. <laughs> there are days when I feel like that, but I don't act on that feeling anymore. You know, it's amazing when you read the Metta Sutta, the Sutta on love, which we'll talk about in more detail in a few moments. The Buddha says these words. He says, just like the love of a mother, just like the love of a parent to a child, you don't think, you know, like, uh, I'm not getting up, I feel rotten, when they're crying out at 1 o'clock in the morning. It doesn't come up. doesn't happen. Oh, just let her cry. No. You see? Which says to us, it is a choice. It really is. It is a choice. At every moment, we are choosing either to be or not to be. You see? And whatever the reasons for not being, they are our reasons and only our reasons. They are only our reasons. Whatever reason I choose not to be, that's my reason only. It's not the reality. It's not the truth. It's not the facts. When we allow the mind to indulge such attractions, we lose our concentration we lose our energy, we lose our purpose for life. So whenever we find ourselves dwelling on how we're feeling, whether it's not feeling really up to it or feeling even joyful. So the Buddha warned against even the happy emotions. He said because what ego does with happy emotions is what? 
You know, J yeah, Jack Nicholson said, you can't handle the truth. Well, you can't handle happiness. Okay? Because, yeah, what ego wants to do in those happy things is hold on to it and then measure every other moment according to that moment. And if you were listening to Mark Nepo's words, this comparison is what we end up spending our life doing the rest of our lives the moment we compromise who we are. See, you can't compare who you are to anyone. You can't be compared to anyone. There is no one other like you. You can't compare. But when you compromise who you are, you spend the rest of your life comparing yourself to not only everyone else, but every ideal, every expectation, every belief there is. I mean, think about Think about how much of your day is spent striving to live up to expectations, your own and others. Your own and others. So we need to apply mindfulness and be aware of how the mind is operating in the moment. So at any given moment, when we find ourselves trapped in our feelings, trapped in our emotions, the first step, and this is how we manage all the hindrances, the first step is to stop and take the time to inquire into what's going on for me. Why do I feel this way? Why do I really feel this way? Now again, remember, when, when ill will shows up, it shows up justified. So if you inquire into it and you say, well, because of what she did, you know not to stop there, <laughs> okay? Because it's not because of what she did, okay? It's not because of what she did. This is not a denial of whatever that was or whatever he did was, but your stuckness is your stuckness. It's going on in you. It's going on in you. She's out of the party. You're home. I'll fix her. <laughs> She's out of the party. <laughs> you see? He, it, whatever. Kind of like getting upset with the Republicans to such a degree that you get sick. They don't care. <laughs> Like, who are you spiting? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We don't necessarily have to suppress all these things arising in the mind, but we should take notice of them and see how the mind behaves, how it automatically grabs onto this and that. So, a simple practice of this is notice what's present and stay focused on where you are. Stay present to what you're doing in that moment. Do not be distracted either by the good or the not so good emotion and feelings. Just notice them. If they're good, just simply acknowledge that. Oh, that's nice. If they're not so good, just simply acknowledge that. Oh, that'll pass. <laughs> that'll pass. Well, look who just showed up. Hi. Now go away. See? In order to overcome the hindrance of sensory desire, the meditator must first apply mindfulness and recognize that the hindrance is present. So we don't avert it, 
We don't ignore it. We don't deny it. We just simply notice its presence. Then one must look at the hindrance, understand it, make it the object of our meditation, experience it fully. So by making it the object of our meditation, we, what I call, create space to allow it to be part of the meditation. What most of us try to do in meditation is what we try to do in life. Back to something you said a moment ago. We try to replace it with something else. So we're meditating and darkness shows up and we want to go to the ocean. Okay, so we say, well, I'm going to go meditate on the beach. No, it doesn't work, I say, because it's going to follow you there. It's going to follow you there. So we notice it and we allow it to be present. To fully experience something requires a willingness on my part to experience the emotion in the body. The work is in the body, not here. So when we talk about understanding it, we can only understand it by experiencing its energy in the body. Why? How do we understand it by allowing it to be present and experiencing its energy in the body. How does that lead to understanding? Your body tenses up, it reacts to different emotions that you have, your senses. So you, there you are sitting and you're allowing that emotion to just sit there. You're not analyzing it, you're not judging it, you're not qualifying it, you're not testing it, you're not wrapping a story around it, you're just feeling it. Where does the understanding show up? It's something that has to do with what it inevitably happens when you practice it that way. It'll disappear. What more understanding about it do you want? If it was real, it would remain. See? Now here's another part of the understanding you get. We survived it. Remember? I couldn't just forgive her. <laughs> I can't just forget that. I can't live like this. In meditation, when you sit with the pain, when you sit with the negative emotion and experience it, you kind of like become friends with it and it disappears. So there's a law of physics. It's literally a scientific law that says Whatever you resist will persist and you eventually become. Whatever you fully experience disappears. Disappears. So we are to hold all sensory emotions and feelings in the body the same way. We're not to make anything big out of the happiness like, oh, now I'm happy because this condition is present. All right, let's go for more of the condition. No. Happiness, like sadness, is impermanent. The condition changes, the happiness will change. See? So enjoy the happiness when the happiness is here, and don't make so much about the sadness when the sadness is here. And they will both come and go. Come and go. What always follows happiness is sadness. What always follows sadness is happiness because all of those emotions are impermanent. They are impermanent. They don't stay unless what? 
you keep them. <laughs> Unless you keep them. Unless you invite them in, give them a room, and feed them. Come on in here. I got a story I want to keep repeating in my head, and I need you for that. It's called Sicilian hospitality. <laughs> <laughs> very beautiful Jewish lady told me the other day it's also Jewish hospitality <laughs> but the truth is that, is that the body is there to serve the five senses not the other way around the five senses are the world and to leave the world, to enjoy the other world of nirvana, one must give up for a time all concern for the body and its five senses. So if I'm ever going to experience that other, if you will, which we refer to as nirvana, that other reality, I must give up my dependency and attachment to the five senses. So the five senses are not there to make us happy or make us sad. They're just doing what they do. Just like ego is not the devil. You see, their ego is just doing what it's designed to do. At all times, I am either causing my own suffering or I am causing the solution that leads to my own cessation of suffering. And this is how I do it. Take no bodily sensation, no emotion of, that is generated through the five senses for real. For real. And if you don't think, you know, you know as adults, I, I know that uh, I'm beginning to really appreciate how, as adults, we tend to think of this, it's not real statement as something we can't have fun with. Well, you know what? I watch cartoons with my daughter and love them. Love them and have so much fun watching them. There are some that I watch when she's not even around. You know? I, I turn on the Disney Junior Channel all the time. You know? And the Sprout Channel. I can sing some of the songs for you. You see? So if that is an evidence that we can have fun with illusion, I don't know what is. But the moment... You really get into the discussion, and I saw two people do this once, of how socially disturbing Tom and Jerry is, there will be suffering. <laughs> it's kind of like, don't worry about Tom smacking Jerry or vice versa. Get me something to hit you with. You know? that, talk about attachment to, uh, to one of the hindrances. So, when we are indulging the hindrance of sensory perception, we are allowing that emotion, that feeling, that sensation to remain with us, but more accurately, we are keeping it with us. The practice of just noticing, understanding what the mind, your mind, in that moment is doing with it. Now, one of the things that you will notice that your mind is doing with it all the time, especially the negative ones, including the, 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 the positive ones. I would say any either end of the spectrum is it's wrapping a story around it. 
the, to the degree that you indulge the story is the degree to which that experience will remain. So it's kind of like reading a novel. You read it and you put it down. And you go on to the next book. That's how you manage these emotions and experiences in the body. You read it and you put it down. And you go on to the next book. You don't keep going back to that book. You go on to the next book. And so forth. The hindrance of ill will is latching onto thoughts or feelings based on anger, resentment, hostility, or bitterness. Ill will refers to the desire to punish, to hurt, or even destroy. It includes sheer hatred of a person or even a situation, and it can generate so much energy that it is both seductive and addictive. At, that, at the time, it always appears justified, for such is its power that it easily corrupts our ability to judge fairly and honestly and accurately. It also includes ill will towards oneself, otherwise known as guilt, which denies oneself any possibility of happiness. In meditation, ill will can appear as dislike towards the meditation itself, rejecting it the practice of it so that one's attention is forced to wander elsewhere. So once again, all of the five hindrances, all of the five hindrances, distract us from the present moment. If there is any reason to do the work to apply the antidote to the five hindrances is that they are always taking us away from where life is happening. Life is always happening in the present moment. For you and I right now, it's happening right here with us together in this place. How many times possibly in the course of tonight did you think of something other than this place, this time, this conversation? Ill will is one of the stronger hindrances that is constantly taking us away from where life is happening and our life necessities are. Our vitality is the first thing ill will robs us of. If we find ourselves constantly tired and having no physiological explanation for that, no virus, no illness that the doctors can you know, identify, we need to take a look at how possibly consciously or unconsciously we are dwelling on some offense from the past and running that story in our head. Ill will at any moment takes us out of the moment, robs us, distracts us, causes us to wander off away from where life is happening. Even though all of us do it, myself included, whenever thoughts of ill will arise, either for another or for yourself, the practice is to notice it, to notice its presence, and to get back to living your life in the present moment, here and now. So one of the practices I regularly give my students is, for example, whenever you find yourself telling a story that is either critical or judgmental about yourself or anyone else, you simply acknowledge it and move on. You do not indulge it for one more second, no matter how much it shows up as justified.
no matter how much it shows up as justified. And if that doesn't work for you, this will. Acknowledge it for what it is. Just another lie. And if you want to spend your life living lies, you can do that. But you don't get to complain. People who spend their lives living lives and get to complain are politicians. <laughs> so when we do the work of examining what the mind is doing in that moment or how ill will arises. So when I was driving here down Tuckerton Road, full of joy and thinking about how wonderful it was how beautiful my daughter is, how she told me how much she loved me and kissed me and couldn't wait till I came home and all of that that comes with that and drove past this person's home and suddenly felt that ill will. What was going on was a story jumped in the middle of my experience, entered my experience. So the practice is to notice the story show up and to stop telling the story. Stop telling the story. Or what I often say is don't indulge the story. I have a dear friend in Philadelphia who, um, who I've known for many years and we've talked about different approaches to doing this type of work. And one of the things that she finds that works for her is to notice that happening and say cancel. <laughs> cancel. And she goes on to something else. If you can do that, good for you. you know? So, like I said a moment ago, to notice it and just simply say, there's another lie. Oh, another lie. Thank you. And if you want to spend your life in lies, you can do that. But you don't get to complain. So... In our effort to understand what is going on in that moment, what is not going on is we are not feeling the way we are feeling because of the actual event. If the actual event was the cause of our feeling and emotions, we would feel that way all the time. All the time. Because you can't go back and change the event. So in that moment, for me, feeling the way I felt in the last five seconds because I practiced this. In those five seconds, I felt that pain because I was listening to the story. The moment I noticed what I was doing and I canceled, those feelings were gone with it. All emotions exist, exist accompanied by a thought. You cannot have any peculiar emotion without having a corresponding thought. You can't have any peculiar emotion without having a corresponding thought. Therefore, if you are feeling a painful emotion in the question, what is the mind up to now? The mind is telling a story. And you are indulging that story. Now, if you listen to what I just said, you, I want you to listen to it again, but I want you to listen to what's not being said. 
In the moment that you are feeling a painful emotion, the mind is telling a story. Don't indulge the story. If you indulge the story, there will be suffering. If you don't indulge the story, there will not be suffering. What haven't I told you yet? Which is part of the ego delusion and why these hindrances have the power they have over us. You are not the emotion or the event or any character in the event in that moment. If you are noticing the story and the feeling, you are not the feeling or the story. You got it. You are not the feeling or the story. And guess what? You're not. No one is their feelings or their thoughts. You have thoughts, or more accurately until you get this, thoughts have you, feelings have you. But you are not your feelings, you are not your emotions, you are not your thoughts, unless you choose to be. And you choose to be your feelings when you indulge them. Because whatever you resist persists and whatever you persist long enough, you become. You become. So if you keep indulging stories, you become the stories. You become the emotions. But you are not your feelings and emotions. This is the work, this is the work that only meditation can truly uh, ingrain this into your in, into your uh, capacity for wisdom. <coughs> because in meditation, you experience this through and through. You sit long enough for periods of time, years of times, observing all of this going on, and one day you wake up and you know in your heart you never were any of that history. Never. You never were any of that history. That's why so many people get to the end of their life suffering over death, not because they're afraid of death, but because they're afraid they never lived their lives. That in fact they lived someone else's life. And they find that out at the last moment, you see, when it's too late, for that life at least. Any questions? Yes. Um, so you said earlier, um, recognize that the universe is present and create a space for it in the meditation. And I'm trying to understand how that balances with, for instance, recognizing an ill will type hindrance in, say, cancel. Well, the cancel was my friend's practice. Well, right. And what she was canceling was not the ill, not the experience, not the emotion itself but the story, okay? So creating a, we're creating a space for that experience, but not living the story, not telling the story in our head. So that's how meditation is a perfect example. When you're sitting, you sit with the feeling. Well, we'll use the word feeling. You sit with the feeling in your body. 
you see where that feeling is. Is it in your gut? Is it in your shoulders? Where is that feeling? Does your, do you have heavy breathing going on? You sit with that experience. You don't try to change it. You don't try to avert it. And you certainly don't tell a story about it. You just continue to breathe with that emotion. That's what we mean by creating space for it to be with us in the meditation. And, and the example that I often give, again, about being a parent to my daughter, I absolutely love her, but there are days I don't feel that way, okay? But I act lovingly despite that, <coughs> and that's the same thing. You allow that feeling that's being generated by something else anyway to be present, and you still parent your child with loving kindness and compassion. I see. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay. The antidote to work on the grip that ill will has in our life has to do with the meditation practice of metta. Practicing meditation, practicing metta during meditation. Now the way you practice metta during meditation is that you take, for example, a reoccurring resentment, <coughs> uh, grudge, uh, hate for, whatever it may be for you. You take that reoccurring story and you sit with it in meditation. But instead of justifying, qualifying the story, holding the story and indulging the story, you imagine the person you may have that resentment against with you in the meditation and you wish them loving kindness. You wish them the very thing you wish they wouldn't have. You offer them forgiveness. You sit with them. You know, one of the teachings, and I don't often quote this guy, but for now it's, it's, it's applicable. He often talks about working with men getting over their parental relationships with their fathers. In the Metta Sutra that he prescribes, Thich Nhat Hanh, he says, imagine your father is a five-year-old. Imagine your father is a five-year-old in your meditation and relate to that five-year-old. So metta-sutta meditation is where we bring the object of our resentment, the object of our ill will, into the meditation and we imagine them sitting there with us and we go through the process. Einstein said the real world is created by the imagination. In therapy, anger therapy, what do you think they tell you to do as one of the primary practices for relieving you of the anger towards someone? Get angry. Get angry. Get angry at home with your pillow and tell them everything you want to tell them. How many of you have done something like that? I have and felt relief afterwards. Felt relief afterwards. That's what Einstein meant. Reality happens with the imagination. So the Metta Sutta is like that. We are sitting in meditation with someone we resent or have ill will towards, and we are speaking to them, giving them our love, wishing them good, imagining them <coughs> accepting it, 
It's what Tibetans refer to as feeding the demon. When demons show up in your life, you don't want to take them on, you don't want to reject them, you don't want to avoid them, you want to welcome them into your home, discover what they need, what their hunger is about, and feed them that. You see, and feed them that. And that is similar to the Metta Sutra practice. Similarly, if it is ill will towards yourself, Metta sees more than one's own faults, can understand one's own faults, and finds the courage to forgive them, learn from their lesson, and let them go. Then, if it is ill will towards the meditation object, often the reason why meditators cannot find peace, Metta embraces the meditation object with care and delight. For example, just as a mother has a natural Metta towards her child, so a meditator can look on their breath, say, with the very same quality of caring attention. Then it will be, a, be just as unlikely to lose the breath through forgetfulness as it is unlikely for a mother to forget her baby in the shopping mall, and it would be just as improbable to drop the breath for some distracting thought as it is unlikely for a distracted mother to drop her baby. When ill will is overcome, it allows lasting relationships with other people, with oneself, and in meditation, a lasting, enjoyable relationship with the meditation object, one that can mature into the full embrace of absorption. So at all times, whether it is a person, place, or thing, whether it is something you have to do that you don't like doing, like going to work on Monday, you can take metta, practice it in your meditation, hold it likewise in your meditation, and transform that experience for yourself. Whatever your ill will is towards, we are to welcome it in and offer it metta in place of our ill will, resentment, hatred, or anything of that sort. <coughs> Sloth. Just love that word. Sloth. Torpor. Is a dull, morbid state that is characterized by unwieldiness, lack of energy, and opposition to wholesome activity. Sloth and torpor refers to that heaviness of body and dullness of mind which drag one down into disabling inertia and thick depression. In meditation, it causes weak and intermittent mindfulness, which can even lead to falling asleep in meditation without even realizing it. The mind has two main functions, doing and knowing. The way of meditation is to calm the doing to complete tranquility while maintaining the knowing. Sloth and torpor occur when one carelessly calms both the doing and the knowing, unable to distinguish between them. Sloth and torpor is an unpleasant state of body and mind, too stiff to leap into the bliss of nirvana and too blinded to spot any insights. In short, it is a complete waste of precious time. When this hindrance is present, we lose our focus in meditation. We may not be agitated in any perceptible way, but there is no mental clarity. We gradually become more and more drowsy and then eventually go to sleep. Translated into the experience of sloth and torpor into daily living, we're unable to really concentrate on what we're doing. 
were unable to really focus on the activity at hand, or the depression part is we just have no desire to get up off the sofa, if you will. The hindrance of sloth torpor is compared to being imprisoned in a cramped, dark cell, unable to move freely in the bright sunshine outside. The antidote to sloth torpor has to do with, again, what I call Nike Buddhism. Rousing energy. Energy is always available, but few know how to turn on the switch as it were. So again, one of the delusions of the hindrance known as sloth or torpor is I don't feel like it, I don't have the energy to do it, and so forth. And what we normally do in response to that is we wait for that to show up. The teaching is you must rouse the energy. You must get off the sofa. A body in motion, what? Stays in motion. It stays in motion because the energy has been roused to a level of vibration that supports it to stay in motion. And that energy must be roused in the same way that an engine must be ignited. In the same way that an engine must be ignited. In meditation, sloth and torpor is handled with posture. So often when it is present in meditation, we find ourselves slumped and falling off to sleep, nodding off and what have you. We rouse the energy because when we raise our body upward into an awake posture, the energy flows more easily. So we rouse up and we begin to breathe deeper and more consciously aware of each breath. And we find that the body awakes, the mind awakes, and we are able to return to a more steadfast meditation in that moment. If we, if we allow the sloth, the heaviness, the tiredness uh, to, you know, again, determine for us the meditation. And we just kind of like sit through and say, oh, God, I can't wait for the bell to ring and so forth. Nothing will change. Now, there is a practice in Zen meditation that most people take for granted and take as, as something part of it but never really appreciate the full value of it. So in Zen meditation, unlike other meditation schools, there is the practice of kinhin, which is the practice of intermittent standing and walking, circumambulating the zendo mindfully. That was designed by the Renzai Zen masters for this very purpose, to eliminate the regular presence of sloth in meditation. So what happens is you sit for a period of time, the Jigijitsu rings the bell, you rise, you bow, and we circumambulate, we walk in a circle for a few moments to rouse the energy in the body and the mind to go back and sit again. I will tell you that I have had such uh, direct experiences of the power of that practice, uh, especially you know, I wake up 4 o'clock in the morning to prepare the zendo and to do my morning sitting, and people get there about 6. And I've already been sitting for close to an hour, and one of the things we do at 6 o'clock in the morning is we sit straight through. We don't do kinheen. So when I have done kinheen, though, before people come, I, you know, I find myself, you know, falling asleep before the 6 o'clock hour, 
and I get up and I practice keen heen so that by the time the first people come in at 6 o'clock, my energy has been roused and I'm awake for that period with them. So, yeah, something as simple as taking a walk, getting up off your sofa and taking a walk outside uh, when you are feeling this way in your home. At the workplace, they suggest that. To not just keep working through, but to get up and take a walk, go to the, wherever it is they tell you to go to. Just get up and walk around, rouse that energy, and then go back to work. What, what is the teaching of this particular hindrance? Again, energy is everywhere. We can feel energetic any moment we want to if we know how. This is how. When we don't feel the energy, we rouse the energy. We wake it up. In, um, oh God, I can't believe my mind just went shut down. The uh, Japanese religion that's not Buddhist, uh, Shinto. Shinto, thank you. In Shintoism, when the practitioner of Shinto goes before the deity to pray, what do they do? What's the first thing they do? Ring a bell. They either ring a bell or they clap. They are rousing the energy. That's what they're doing. They're rousing the energy. That's why the use of bells and clappers are so uh, important in liturgy in Zen monasteries. So it's the rousing of the energy. They either clap three times or they ring a bell if it's present to rouse the energy of the deities and the energy of that space to allow for that prayer to be effective. Likewise, when sloth and ill will is present in our living, we rouse the energy, we awaken it, and then we go back to focus on the task at hand. Other ways of rousing the energy is to set a goal in your life, a reasonable goal. is a wise and effective way to generate energy as is deliberately developing interest in the task at hand. A young child has a natural interest and consequent energy because its world is so new. Thus, if one can learn to look at one's life or one's meditation with a beginner's mind, one can see ever new angles and fresh possibilities which keep one distant from sloth and torpor alive and energetic. Similarly, one can develop delight in whatever one is doing by training one's perception to look for and see the beautiful in the ordinary and mundane, thereby generating the interest which avoids the half-death that is sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor is a common problem which can creep up and smother one slowly. A skillful meditator keeps a sharp lookout for the first signs of sloth and torpor and is thus able to spot its approaches and take evasive action before it is too late. Like coming to a fork in a road, one can take that mental path leading away from sloth and torpor. Any questions? So the only answer to remaining on the couch is to get off the couch. <laughs> the only answer to, uh, you know, to missing out for those fun times in life is to go to those fun times in life. See? Stop depending on how the body feels in the moment because the body feels that way in the moment because you're still on the couch. Nothing is or exists independently apart from anything else. There is a cause and a condition bringing it about. So if I'm experiencing sloth or topa, we just heard what causes that.
and we just heard the antidote for that. There is a cause for everything. There is a solution for everything. There is a spiritual response for everything. For everything. You need to just apply it. Restlessness and worryment. The hindrance of restlessness and worryment refers to a mind that is agitated and unable to settle down. Restlessness refers to a mind which is like a monkey, always swinging on the next branch, never able to stay long with anything. It is caused by, it is caused by, now here it is, fault-finding state of mind, which is never satisfied with things as they are, and so has to move on to the promise of something better, something more, something different. It is caused by fault-finding state of mind. When we talk about states of mind, we talk about what we are bringing to the moment. So if you are a person or personality that is always qualifying, testing, evaluating the moment, the monkey mind will dominate your life. Satisfaction, dissatisfaction will reign and satisfaction will never come. So if the cause is qualifying, testing, judging, and comparing everything to some ideal, what do you think the antidote is? Stop. Stop. You can, but you don't want to. And you don't want to because you get some satisfaction out of that. So the next step is to remind yourself, nothing wrong with that, as long as you can accept the temporality of it. <laughs> it is only going to be there for a while. You're only going to be satisfied for a little bit. Temporarily. <coughs> so if you like temporarily, that works for you. But you don't get to complain about it. Okay? This is not about you know, there's a reason why we call it training. There's a reason why we call it training. It's not about, this is what I want to do. <laughs> it's not about that. It becomes what you want to do once you taste the fruits of it. But most people don't train long enough to taste the fruits of it. I mean, how do you think that soccer player who lost the other day felt? And how do you think the one who won felt about all that training? See? So once you taste the fruits of your work, you know, 40 years ago, I often tell this story, 40 years ago I couldn't sit five minutes. And I had a lot of justification, including these Buddhists are cult people. See? A lot of justification. Not to mention the fact that my first teacher made me sit on a sheet on a pointed rock. <laughs> that was really justified. Didn't even give me a cushion. It's a little, little frizzy thing about that thing. Like, go sit over there. I want to sit over No, go sit over there. There. So justify, justified doesn't mean anything. 
Just do it. The discomfort and restlessness creates an outward-looking tendency. What can I do to fix this? That's another thing the monkey mind always wants to do. So there's a Zen saying, when trouble arises, do nothing. When trouble arises, do nothing. Nothing. Lao Tzu once said, if you sit along the banks of the river long enough, you will see the bodies of your enemies float by. <laughs> Change comes. Sometimes a little longer than we like, but it'll come. So one of the, uh, one of the manifestations of the restless, wary monkey mind is the need to fix everything all the time, to have it just this way. Now again, you can live that way if you want. But the teaching is you will never find any satisfaction. That will not be part of the experience. You will always be changing it to fix it. You will always be looking for more, better, and different. You will always be looking for the <coughs> next person, the next place, the new residence. You will always be doing that because the hindrances are what? I said this when we started. Habitual. And if you don't cut the habit and replace it with a new habit, you will always keep doing it that way. I'm sorry? What if the new habit is worse than the first habit? <laughs> then you're in a lot of trouble. Restlessness is overcome by developing contentment. Developing contentment is overcome by releasing fault-finding, even if the fault-finding is justified. Even if the fault-finding is justified. Even if your criticism is justified, accurate, and real. So what? The object you are criticizing and judging will die. The judger and the criticizer will die. The question is not whether you're right about the judgment or not, but is that how you want to spend the time you do have? You see? It's like I said earlier, the only reason why we cling to habitual behaviors that repeatedly bring us dissatisfaction is that we believe temporary is permanent and we will always and only get temporary satisfaction. And temporary is not permanent. Temporary is temporary. That's why they call it temporary. <laughs> stupid does what stupid is. <laughs> the antidote is to replace fault finding with gratitude. To replace fault finding by being grateful for this moment rather than picking out its deficiencies. Being grateful for this moment rather than picking out its deficiencies. For instance, in meditation restlessness is often the impatience to move quickly on to the next level of meditation. Progress, progress, progress. The fastest progress, though, is achieved by those who are content with the stage they are on now. 
It is the deepening of that contentment that ripens into the next stage. So if you want to know how to achieve progress in your spiritual life, focus on where you are now and master that. That's why I always tell people when they come to the monastery to train, you are not going to practice meditation. You are going to master it. I don't teach meditation. I teach mastering a way of life. Remorse refers to a specific type of restlessness, which is the karmic effect, the karmic effect of one's misdeeds. The only way to overcome remorse or regret to some incident or situation of the past or to some feelings of guilt is to purify one's virtue and become kind, wise, and gentle towards oneself and towards others. It is virtually impossible for the immoral or the self-indulgent to make deep progress in meditation. Therefore, this is cute, I want you to hear this. There might be a really good cause for you to be restless. Maybe you haven't paid your taxes in 10 years. In that case, you don't need meditation. You need to pay your taxes. You don't use meditation to run away from the real issues of your life. Sometimes what's needed is to really look and understand are there root causes for being restless. So one of the problems with contemporary spirituality is that most people are looking for the truth to fit their reality. And given most people's reality, the truth is never going to fit. So sometimes our restlessness has good reason. And like the example, pay your taxes then. Or it may be Go and, ask, go and apologize, you see? Or it may be you really aren't giving your all at work, and is that why you're worried about whether you're going to have job security? Give your all at work, you see? So when we look at this, it's not denial of the reality. It's taking the reality and running with it, because the reality, when we run with it, becomes the truth, becomes the truth. Doubt. The hindrance of doubt refers to doubt about one's ability. All doubt about one's ability is a lie. That's the short version. All doubt about one's ability is a lie. Even if you may not be able to do it now, you can learn to do it tomorrow. So there are four mantras my five-year-old has been reciting since she could talk. I am wonderful. I am beautiful. I am capable. I am loved. And every single time she gets stuck on doing something and wants me to do it, I tell her, figure it out. <coughs> you are capable. And she gives a rumble and a rumble and a rumble. And the next thing I hear is, Daddy, I did it. I said, yes, because you are capable. So all self-doubt or doubt about one's ability to do anything is to be held as a lie. Now, when we do the inquiry as to why we have the doubt, once again, what will we see? Where did that doubt come from? 
you that child who used to jump and run and bounce off of things and achieve things that adults would shriek over trying to stop you from doing. Where did that doubt come from? Some external conditioning. So here we are back again. The doubt is a function of my dependency on the presence or lack of presence of some external condition. Whenever I am measuring my life that way, it is a lie and suffering will compound. Don't people have limitations though? I mean, there's just some, sometimes you can't do something. But the limitations are not failures. They are limitations. They are real. When, the, when you come up against a wall, the wall is real. But most people's walls are imaginary. Okay? I certainly would not suggest that you want me operating on your heart tonight. Okay? All right? I'm not Walter Mitty. <laughs> well, guess what? That might be true. Because isn't that what the surgeon got? Instructions. You see? So that is what I'm saying. Exactly what Arnold thinks. You may not know how to do it now, and you may be limited now, but you are capable of learning beyond those limitations. And, and, and you knew that as a child. Mm -hmm. You knew that through and through. You didn't have to have some Zen master tell you that, certainly, or anybody tell you that. My daughter doesn't need me to tell her that. You know, Laura doesn't need you to tell her that, mm -hmm. right? So all doubts are lies. When we inquire into why they have the power, we are indulging our addiction to or dependency upon, I will say it this way, the liar. Because someone told us that. Someone told us that. And in that moment, we are dependent upon that lie and the liar, the source of the lie. And you will probably discover, if you did enough inquiry into that source, Someone told them the same lie. We've gone past 9 o'clock, so I'm sure you want to go. But that's it generally. Any questions? So, summary. When you come up against what you see as a line, do not retreat so quickly. Do the work for your own sake of inquiring into what the desire to retreat is really about. Where does that come from? Who or what are you listening to? And if you find, as you will, in each situation, it is a dependency upon some external condition to either approve or disapprove. Remember, that is the cause of suffering. That is the cause of suffering. And act accordingly. This is the truth, not a lie. Next month will be the final Zen chat here at Yoga for Living.
August, we traditionally closed down all public programs at the monastery. So in September, the first Zen chat of the new training period will be back home at Pinewind Zen Center. So next month uh, will be the last Zen chat here at Yoga for Living. And I hope that all of you are prepared to come and visit us at Pinewind before September, but certainly in September. On August 9th, we are having a big festival celebration of our intentions in September. So we'll be having an open house from 1 to 5 on August 9th. Come and play with me. I think Katie's going to be there too, so she'll want to play. Anything else? Wednesday night chattings? What about? Do them. Oh, we do them. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. <clears throat> Wednesday night, big night at the Pine Wind. Come to our Wednesday nights. This coming Tuesday will be the last Tuesday meditation class here at Yoga for Living. So uh, Tuesday at 7.30, but we don't have a Wednesday night this coming week. We're, this is Sacred Space Week, isn't it? Yes, for sure. Stop confusing me. <laughs> and so forth. Visit the calendar. Come to Pine Wind. That's where you belong. Stop fooling around and drop the hindrances and get there. Good night. Thank you. You can go now. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>